655-1162. That's 655-1162. Or visit www.epicalc.org. This is KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, and KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. The shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is October the 13th, 2009. Yes, and everything's just fine. I've got to address this microphone. I mustn't touch the sponge. I got a a note from a friend the other day about not touching things because of this swine flu. I got my shot. Not the swine flu shot. Just the regular flu shot. But now I'm going to go get the swine flu shot. Uh, That great comedian and satirist Bill Maher is coming on late-night television, cable, millions of listeners, telling people not to get the flu shot. Thanks a lot, Bill. Never mind. Check with your doctor and don't take it from me. Just try to be reasonable, people. Anyway, this week, uh, everyone celebrating Barack Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize. How's that for irony? His daughters woke him up to tell him about it. They also told him it was Bo's birthday. Bo is the family dog. Anyway, now, goddess knows the president didn't ask for the Nobel Peace Prize, you know. It wasn't something he was asking for like he asked for the Olympics in Chicago. He didn't get that, so. Oh, no, I... I I guess now he is hostage to history or to fortune. Uh, I asked my um, son in Texas uh, how people were taking it out there. Of course, he tells me that there's no winning where he lives, no matter what you oppose. He said there's no winning. He says, uh, he's near Dallas, he said, incremental progress measured in geologic Time, gotcha. He describes in great detail the flyover. I love that expression, the flyover. That's the middle of the country. Paul writes, the flyover is a red sea with remote blue islands. You live on the islands and watch their size ebb and flow with the tide. And then he goes on about being a happy little liberal 
And then he uses some words I can't use on the air with relation to Bubba. But I'm just going to leave that for now. I, I, uh, I think that the Scandinavians, uh, I think they pulled a neat trick. My son is a Scandinavian, come to think of it, a half. His father was a uh, Scandinavian. But I think that this Nobel trick, uh, you know, they know what to do just at the moment when our president must make momentous decisions, <laughs> whether to escalate the war in Afghanistan. Yes, they put him uh, on the spot. Very clever. Uh, he did say, you remember, he said on the uh, mass media, he said he's taking it as a mandate or uh, as a uh, uh, motivational uh, thing. He he doesn't know, of course, whether to escalate things. Uh, I think, of course, that he should just uh, sit tight. Don't fight. Just uh, hold the fort. Back off slowly, slowly. Just let things work themselves out, you know. See what those Afghans do. And then so be it. It's their country. The United States and those other nations, the ones who have troops over there, uh, they might be able to behave or act as if they're peacekeepers, UN types, you know. I write postcards to the White House. My favorite postcards are no first strike, no drones, and most of all, no bombs. You might hit a wedding party, right? Nothing that might end in the death of civilians. Anything that endangers the Afghani people, we don't want that to happen. Now, the mass media guys, <laughs> they, they keep talking about the president dithering. I think dithering is a good plan. You know how that is. Talk, talk, talk. Just keep talking day after day, year after year, and we go on living and loving and having a wonderful life. That's what I think. Uh, I don't know what it is about this. Uh, I don't know whether it's psychological or a guy thing, you know, but they always insist that people do something. I think, you know, we can do less harm. That's what we can do. Less harm. And then someday maybe we'll do no harm. I want to read you something that I hope won't be too boring, but it's uh it's something that oh dear, I was gonna I was gonna read it to you without telling you the dates or even who wrote it and see if you could figure it out. But on radio, you know you you just can't do that. You can't read for more than five minutes without uh, telling people what it is uh, you're telling them, so I guess I'll have to explain it. Uh, this is something I found in the June issue of Harper's Magazine, and it's called Known Knowns, and it's all about Afghanistan way back when, back uh, 20 years ago, 1988, right, regrets is in parenthesis here at the top, yes, regrets. Oh, the Soviets regret. And the title here is Known Knowns, which, of course, is supposed to be a joke. 
<laughs> this is a letter. A letter from the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union to all the party members. And uh, this is just an excerpt. It's written May the 10th, 1988. Got that? 1988, not 98, not, one, not 2008. 21 years ago. Uh, it's all about the withdrawal of the Soviet troops from Afghanistan. Now, that began... Uh, May 15th, it was completed in February, February 15th, 1989. So this letter describes the Soviet uh, Union getting ready to get out of Afghanistan. This is the Central Committee of the Communist Party. And they write this letter to the party members trying to explain why they had to get their butt out of Afghanistan. This letter is among documents related to the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. It was published by the National Security Archive. It's translated from the Russian by Svetlana Savronskaya. And here's what it says. <laughs> remember, 21 years ago. <laughs> and remember that they're talking... Uh, they're not talking about a modern country. Anyway, this is the letter. The decision to invade was made when there was a lot of uncertainty in the balance of forces within Afghan society. <laughs> Our picture of the real social and economic situation in the country was also insufficiently clear. We do not want to say it, but we should. At that time, that is the time when the decision was made to invade, we did not even have a correct assessment of the unique geographical features of that hard-to-enter country. This was reflected in the operations of our troops against small, highly mobile units where very little could be accomplished with the help of modern military technology. <laughs> In addition, we, that is the Soviet Union, Soviet troops, we completely disregarded the most important national and historical factors, that is the Communist Party members, the Central Committee. Okay. We completely disregarded the most important national and historical factors, above all, the fact that the appearance of armed foreigners in Afghanistan has always met with arms in the hands of the population. This is how it was in the past, and this is how it happened when our troops entered Afghanistan, even though they came there with honest and noble goals. Babrak Kamal became head of the Afghan government at that time. His first steps in that capacity gave us grounds to hope that he would be able to solve the problems facing his country. Nothing new emerged, however, in his policies that could have changed for the better the attitude of a significant portion of the Afghan population toward the new regime. Moreover, the intensity of the internal Afghan conflict continued to grow. 
I will repeat that. The intensity of the internal Afghan conflict continued to grow, and our military presence was associated with forceful imposition of customs alien to the national characteristics and feelings of the Afghan people. Our approach did not take into account the country's multiple forms of economic life and other characteristics, such as tribal and religious customs. One has to admit that we essentially put our bets on the military solution on suppressing the counter-revolution with force. We did not even make use, make full use of the existing opportunities to neutralize the hostile attitudes of the local population toward us. Often, our people, acting out of their best intentions, tried to transplant the approach to which we are accustomed Yes, we tried to transplant the approach to which we are accustomed onto Afghan soil and encouraged the Afghans to copy our ways. All this did not help our cause. It bred feelings of dependency on the part of the Afghan leaders in regard to the Soviet Union both in the sphere of military operations and in the economic sphere. Meanwhile, the war in Afghanistan continued, and our troops were getting engaged in extensive combat actions. Finding any way out became more and more difficult as time passed. Combat action is combat action. Our losses in dead and wounded, and the Central Committee believes it has no right to hide this, were growing heavier and heavier. I'm breaking in here again to tell you what I'm reading you. I'm reading you a short piece from Harper's Magazine. You can find it in the June 2009 issue. <laughs> it's called Regrets or Known Knowns, and it's an excerpt from a May 1988 letter from the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union to all party members. It's about the withdrawal of Soviet troops from Afghanistan, which began in May and was completed in February of 1989, 20 years ago. This letter is among documents related to the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, published by the National Security Archive. Okay. I will finish up this. This splendid, splendid letter. It's deja vu all over again. Yes, no knowns. This is the Soviet experience. If you think it's any different than ours, well, maybe you can find a difference. We'll see. Anyway. The letter goes uh, on to say that uh, the Central Committee believes it has no right to hide the fact that our losses in dead and wounded were growing heavier and heavier. Altogether, by the beginning of this month, 
May 1988. We had lost 13,310 dead in Afghanistan. 35,478 Soviet officers and soldiers were wounded, many of whom became disabled. 301 people are missing in action. There is a reason people say that each person is a unique world. And when a person dies, that world disappears forever. The loss of every individual is very hard and irreparable. It is hard and sacred if one died carrying out one's duty. The Afghan losses naturally were much heavier than ours, including the losses among the civilian population. One should not disregard the economic factor either. If the enemy in Afghanistan received weapons and ammunition, worth hundreds of millions and later even billions of dollars, the Soviet-Afghan side also had to shoulder adequate expenditures. The war in Afghanistan has cost us five billion rubles a year. Okay, that's the end of the piece in Harper's. I guess there are some differences here of... Uh, The Soviets suffered more losses in their uh, military. They, yes, more of their military personnel died. And uh, we have spent more money than they did. <laughs> naturally, yes, naturally. Oh, this is so incredibly sad. Uh, who is it? What pundit said that history doesn't repeat itself? Only the people do. The Soviet experience, of course, um, is a template. I don't know. Rehearsal? What do you want to call it? Uh, oh, how sad, sad, sad. Anyway, you can find this letter if you're a school teacher. Maybe you want to share this with your students. If you like to show the ways in which history just goes over and over again, uh, you can find it in Harper's Magazine, the June 2009 issue. It's a letter from the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union to all party members explaining why they withdrew their occupation of Afghanistan. And, of course, it is exactly, just exactly the same story that we uh, uh, are in the midst of. Although, as I said, um, we have spent more money. They have lost more men. More people have died. And also... I think they take time here to speak more philosophically and thoughtfully about loss, about death, saying that uh, the reason people say that each person is a unique world, right, yes, there is a reason people say that each person is a unique world. And when a person dies, that world disappears forever. The loss of every individual is very hard and irreparable. I remember, well, last night I was 
watching the usual evening news, they, uh, on the McNeil Lair report on PBS, they show pictures of the, uh, the dead, the lost, uh, people who died in Iraq and Afghanistan. They do this in silence, and you see the names and dates and a picture. It says they, they show the picture, when pictures become available, right, they show in silence. The reading of the names, yes, what we call this, the reading of the names. It's appalling, absolutely appalling, but never mind. Uh, man's inhumanity to man maketh countless thousands mourn. I have one more bit here about war. <laughs> I wanted to read you because oh, it's written in 1991 in June. Uh, it's by Erwin Knoll, and uh, it's called... Not a just war, just a war. <laughs> I found this in a wonderful magazine. It's the 100-year anniversary issue of The Progressive. That came out in April 2009. I'm sure you can find it online. The Progressive put out this uh, collection. It dates from 1909 to 2009, 100 years of The Progressive magazine. It's a mere $4. I don't know if you can still get it. Anyway, the progressive. And this um, little this little excerpt was written in June of 1991 by Erwin Knoll. And uh, he's talking about this concept we know from the poem, the great poem by Auden. You know that business about what every school child knows. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Back and forth, round and round. Anyway, he writes in his article, Not a Just War, Just a War. Violence is a terrible taskmaster. It compels its victims to emulate their oppressors. What's the point of doing that? All this I've understood for most of my life. Why, then, did I spend so many years agonizing over the question of just and unjust wars? Because the first question you are asked when you say there's no such thing as a just war is, what about Nazi Germany? I was born in Austria. The author is Erwin Knoll, right? I was born in Austria, and at the age of six, I watched jackbooted Nazi troops march into Vienna. Millions of Austrians cheered. I was fortunate enough to escape with my life, but many members of my family weren't that lucky they died in the camps. The Holocaust is, I suppose, the formative experience of my life. So... Wasn't it necessary, after all, to stop Hitler? Sure it was. It was necessary, in fact, not to let him get started. But of all the ways to stop Hitler or to keep him from getting started, war was the worst. It was the way that inflicted the most pain, the most suffering, the most damage on everyone, especially on Hitler's victims. 
I believe in ingenious, nonviolent struggle for justice and against oppression. So I don't, won't support our troops. Not in the Persian Gulf or anywhere else. And I won't support anyone else's troops when they go about their murderous business. And I'll say, regretfully, to the fallen black soldiers of the 54th Massachusetts and the guys dead on the beaches of Normandy and the young people who threw stones at Brezhnev's tanks in the streets of Czechoslovakia that they died in vain, perpetuating a cycle of human violence that must be stopped because there is no such thing as a just war. Never was never will be. It's the end of that piece. I'm going to send that off to Barack Obama. <laughs> Why, I don't know. And, uh, yes. Okay, right. And remind him that the Nobel Peace Prize has been given to him uh, for a reason. Yes, so that he will, will uh, stop the next war, yes, what's that song, if God is on our side, he'll stop the next war. Once again, you can find that uh, article about the Second World War, the one that they always argue about, the good war, in the April issue of The Progressive, which is a fabulous, fabulous, it's a collector's item. It's got excerpts from a hundred years of the Progressive magazine, and every single article uh, is just right, uh, right to the heart of things. Uh, <laughs> and every writer, Roger Wilkins, June Jordan. Anyway, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, check out if you have a moment. If you are uh, an addict, as I am, of the New Yorker, always the New Yorker. The October the 5th issue of the New Yorker magazine. It's got the review of Michael Moore's um, Capitalism, a Love Story. <laughs> they were of two minds. Uh, they also mentioned another movie called American Casino, which I have not yet seen. Apparently, they liked that one, too. Uh, I'm not sure it was as much fun as Michael Moore's. Michael Moore has a, a wonderful style, which is why he's so popular, right? Uh, anyway, the October the 5th issue is worth buying because it has a number of things in it. The thing that interested me most was a letter from Tehran called Veiled Threat. It's what do the Iranian protests mean for the country's women? It's all about the women. Okay. There's also another article about, there's an article about Rio, you know, where we're going to have the games, the Olympic Games, and apparently, <laughs> anyway, I, maybe next week I'll have time to read something about what's going on in Rio. It's called Gangland, apparently, is the crime capital of the world. So if you're going to go to Rio, you better check out this article. It's in the October the 5th issue of The New Yorker. Uh, anyway, what's interesting about this article is that it is not Signed, there's no author given. I looked in the front here, and uh, also she changed all the names. I'm assuming it's a she. I don't know. Anyway, the, the person who wrote the article, Veiled Threat, uh, is not named, nor are any of the people 
in the article, all the names are changed. Uh, and, of course, they don't take too much time to talk about history. But um, the author says that when uh, she or he looks at photographs of the Constitutional Revolution of 1906, when Iran won a parliament against strong monarchical opposition, and then at photographs of the Islamic Revolution of 1979, and finally at footage of this summer's demonstrations in Tehran, uh, the author was struck by the absence of women in the first, that's 1906, no women, the paucity of women in the second, only a few, and the triumphant presence of women in the third. Okay. This summer's, last summer's demonstrations, apparently women have emerged. Uh, the author says, the story of women's rights in Iran is one of advances and setbacks, starting back at the start of the 20th century, when a national women's movement took shape. In the 1930s, the wearing of the veil was banned, so forth and so on. They take that veil on and off and on and off. And, of course, the main thing, i got to get off the air, folks, but on the, the main thing about that veil, of course, is that it has nothing to do with the Koran, nothing to do with the religion. It goes back to early times, to patriarchal times, you know, back when women were property. The prophet doesn't say anything except to be modest. This is Jennifer Stone. I will be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. So divide us.